Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as your people. As we gather to celebrate and remember again today the story of your son's death and resurrection, and as we prepare to gather at a table with him and to receive what he has given to us and to remember that sacrifice and the hope that it brings through his resurrection. May we hear the story of, or hear the words of these stories and of this text today, and may it transform our hearts and shape us more into the image of your son, so that we can better follow him and live along his way. We ask this in his name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We've been celebrating Easter for four weeks now, and there's an important connection uh, that I hope we've been making. And that's that the, the events of Easter aren't just for individuals. We live in the 21st century, so it's easy in the 21st century to think about the individual first. That's just how we think. We always think about ourselves, and then we think about our connection to other people. But that's not how people in the first century thought. They tended to think about groups over individuals. So if you're in the first century, you tended to think about yourself in relation to your social groups, whether that was your family or the, the heritage of your people, as in everyone in this day and age was uh, under some sort of Roman rule, whether they were actual Roman citizens or like Israel, not citizens, but under Roman rule. But even if you were Roman, you had your own identity. You were Greek or you were something else before you were Roman. And that was part of your identity. Or maybe it was your trade if you were a blacksmith or a leather worker or a farmer. Whatever it was you did, you were defined by that group or also your religion. And often your religion was associated with your trade and your family and your ancestors. And this is how we, they understood themselves. But in our world, it's the opposite. We think about ourselves first, and then we think about how our identity is shaped by who we are, and then we think about how our identity, and then, well, then we take our identity and we say, well, what groups am I going to be a part of? And that's often how we think, not completely. We can't choose our family. We can't choose where we're born. So we choose less than we like to think, but still, there's a lot of choice involved. And we think we shape who we are. But in the first century, it was the opposite. And we tend to think about the story of Easter on the individual level. And that's not wrong, but when you think beyond the individual level and think about groups of people and all the people of the world. And to think about this story and to think about how this, the story of Easter connects to those people, today we're going to look at John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. So you're going to turn there to John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. We'll look at this together. It will be on the screen, and if you can look in the Pew Bible, it starts on page 1528 for John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. So let's take a look at this together. We're going to see how this connects. This is how it opens up. It says, I am the good shepherd. This is Jesus speaking. The good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And when the wolf attacks the flock and it scatters it, the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus is telling the story. To understand the story, we need to understand the pieces. Each one of these pieces has an important thing to tell us about the story. So from the story, Jesus clearly identifies himself as the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. He's the one speaking. What this means is throughout the story, the shepherd's actions reflect something about Jesus. Now there's also the hired hand. It's less clear who Jesus is thinking about here. But I think from the context, and the reason I say context, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 10, really into chapter 9, we see that Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, and he's talking about them, and he's telling them a story about them. So the hired hands are the religious leaders of the day for Israel. And then there's the sheep. Now, the most immediate context is that the sheep are the people of Israel. But that's easily expanded to all the people who follow Jesus as we consider what he's saying. But in the story, the sheep are the people of Israel, and the hired hands are supposed to be leading the people of Israel for the shepherd who is God, or Jesus. But in the Old Testament, God was always associated with the shepherd. But instead, Jesus says... No, when you come, and it's your responsibility to guard the sheep, when danger comes, you're scattered. But what Jesus said about himself as the good shepherd is he says, I've come to lay my life down for my sheep. So we see this strong contrast between Jesus, the shepherd, and the hired hands. What this tells us is that Jesus is deeply committed to us in a way that no other humans are. No one can be as committed to you as Jesus. And that's why he's there reaching out to you. The religious leaders weren't all bad, but their commitment could never measure up to Jesus. So only Jesus is truly and deeply committed to us. And also, if we look, he's talking about all of us, his sheep. The sheep are individuals. And there's that one story where Jesus leaves the, the 99 sheep to find the one. And so there's this individual idea about what Jesus does. But he cares for all of the individuals as a flock. As a shepherd, you're caring for all the sheep at once. You're trying to bring all of them to a pasture or out of the pasture all at once. It's not individual. You're trying to get all of them to move together. That's what the shepherd's all about. Jesus is committed to his flock, so deeply committed that he says, again, this in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says this, he says, I, says, I, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So Jesus ends this story. And he returns again. He says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I've laid my life down for my sheep. So we see this idea of the sheep being Israel. He says, I lay my life down for them. And he also talks about these other sheep that aren't part of this flock. So that's the rest of us, the Gentiles. He says, I'm going to make them one flock. So right here we see it isn't just Israel. It's all of the sheep. Everyone who wants to follow the shepherd because there's one shepherd. And this shepherd, Jesus, comes And God has given him the authority, his father has given him the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Now, for the John's hearers, or for Jesus's, uh, the people Jesus is speaking to, not John's readers, uh, I guess the first time you're reading John, you you would be in the dark about what's happening. But for us, we've already celebrated Easter, so we read this story and we're thinking back, okay, we just had the story of Easter, and now we hear Jesus talking about laying his life and taking it up again we're easily able to identify what he's talking about. He's talking about how he's going to give his life for his sheep. And what we have to now think about is what does it look like and what is the significance of this in our lives? Now this is something that even the first century Christians were doing. They were trying to figure out what's the significance for Jesus to say, I am the good shepherd, but I've laid my life down for my sheep. And this is how Peter works it out when he is in Acts. This is how Luke records it. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, remember, he's just healed somebody, and they're like, well, how'd you heal this person? He says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how we, he was healed, then know this, you and all of the people of Israel... It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which became the cornerstone. Peter is connecting the dots. He's saying, okay, Jesus came to lay down his life. He was crucified, but God raised him up right there. Raised or put down his life and pick it up again. And Peter says that Jesus did this, and it's by his name that this man's healed. But who is it that reject Jesus? Is it his sheep? No, it's again the hired hands, the religious leaders in all of Israel who's chosen not, chosen not to follow Jesus. They don't believe that Jesus, the man they had just done away with, now is working through his followers. That's what they were hoping wasn't true. We need to understand it was not common for someone like Peter and John, fishermen from Nazareth or from Galilee, to get a meeting with the high priests. I mean, these are the most powerful people in the Jewish community in Israel. They don't just take meetings with anybody. You only get a meeting with them if they're terrified about what you're doing. And they're like, we just took care of this guy, and now people are healing in his name. Need to figure out what's going on. And Jesus says, he's, or Peter says, he's the good shepherd. 
who laid down his life and picked it up. He's making sense of this passage. And he says to the, the leaders, to the hired hands, he says, you've rejected him. And this is the person on whom God's going to build his kingdom. But most importantly, this is what Peter says next. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. What is it that Israel's waiting for? They're waiting for salvation. Now, we think about salvation as an individual. But Israel's thinking about salvation as a nation, being delivered. What is it that God did whenever he took Israel out of Egypt? He saved them. He delivered them. Salvation. What is it that he did when he brought them out of the wilderness into Israel through the Jordan River in Joshua? He saved them. He has saved them time and time again. What is it they're waiting for right now? What is it the Jewish leaders are trying to protect their people from? Well, they're maybe trying to hold on to their power, but they're also trying to protect the nation so that they can maintain the nation until their salvation comes. And Peter says, no, you reject Jesus, you reject the very thing you're waiting for, salvation. Because he laid down and picked up his life, he offers salvation, and no one else can. Jesus did that for us, his sheep. He offered us true life by laying down his own life. And at the center of all this is self-sacrifice. Jesus, our shepherd, he's laid down his life. But remember, shepherds don't just care for the sheep. They also lead them. So this is the question that we have to ask. Okay, Jesus laid down his life to save us, to offer us life, but he also is leading us. So where is it he's leading us? We say in our own founding documents as a church that Jesus is our head. When I say that, I mean as in our congregation says Jesus is the head. Where is he leading us? This is where we turn to 1 John. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his own life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Where is Jesus, Jesus leaving us? He's leaving, leading us to love. He's leading us to love. How do we know what love is? We, know, look, we look no further than him. He's the foundation of our understanding of love. He's our shepherd, and he laid down his life for us. So what is it that we're called to do as we follow him? We're called, John says, to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And why is it we do this? We do this because we follow our shepherd, and he leads us to love by his own example of self-sacrifice. We are called to love like our shepherd. And again, how is it that he loved? He loved with self-sacrifice. We are called to love like our shepherd. And then just in case we're like, okay, I don't know what that's going to look like in my life, John gives us an example. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person. 
Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. How is it that we love? Is it that we say we love or is it that we do love? John makes it clear. It's not about what we say, but it's about what we do. If someone's in need and we don't provide for that need, how are we showing them love? We are called to love like our shepherd. And if we, meet, and if we can meet a need and we don't, we're not loving like our shepherd. And it's not even about giving out of our abundance. It's about self-sacrifice. So sometimes maybe that means we have to give out of sacrifice to ourselves. But we're called to love like our shepherd. But is it all about just loving and helping people? Because we can get confused and think that following Jesus is about helping people. It's about more than just helping people. That's the result of what it's really about. And this is what it's really about. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. This is how we know we're actual followers. It's not about what we do completely. It's about what we are, our hearts are committed to. If our hearts commend, condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, we need to unpack this a little bit to understand it. It's confusing, but it's about the heart. Either our heart condemns us or it does not condemn us. And what that simply means is if we go before God and our heart condemns us, we recognize that we need to surrender to God. But if we've already surrendered to God, our heart does not condemn us, and we receive God's blessing. What it comes down to is allegiance. Are we fully giving our allegiance to God? If we've done that, we can be confident that we're living the way of Jesus and living his love. So we understand that it starts with our heart. What is our heart committed to? Is it committed to doing good deeds because it makes us look good and people think that we're Christian? Or are we committed to following God? And because we're committed to following God, we're following the way of Jesus and the results are helping people. Where's our motivation in our heart? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. It's about committing to God's commandments. And this is how it's defined it is God's commandment. And this is his commandment, to believe in the name of Jesus, or his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Believing Jesus is about trusting that Jesus is the person who claimed to be. And at the center of that claim is the call, follow me, repent from your sins, and I will lead you into the kingdom of God. And what's the kingdom of God all about? A place where harmony returns and we love one another. We're called to love like our shepherd. He's called us to love him. 
and we trust him and we love him by trusting him and following him as our king. It goes back to what I've called the Jesus Creed and I taught, uh, or we taught the, the young godly play classroom. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. The way of Jesus, love God, love others. We love Jesus when we trust who he is and follow his way. And when we follow his way, we're walking the way of the kingdom. And the kingdom is about harmony and loving one another. We are called to love like our shepherd. And when we do this, look, this is what John says. The one who keeps God's commandments lives in him and he in them. What is it we've been talking about? Koinonia. In God's presence, with God. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know by the Holy Spirit, or by the Spirit he gave us. We are called to love like our shepherd. Loving like our shepherd is living a life of sacrifice. So what does Jesus want to do? He wants to gather his flock And he wants his flock to love like him. So we see the story of Easter isn't just about us as individuals. It's about how we connect to the flock and how we live as a flock together, loving like Jesus, our shepherd, and following him as our king. And to follow him as our king, we must lay down our own lives and follow him. And that requires us to lay our own lives down and love those around us. We are called to love like our shepherd. And how is it that our shepherd loves? He loves a self-sacrifice. The cross is at the center of his love. And how is all this possible? Because again, Jesus has set us free to live like him on Easter. Good Friday, he set us free. Easter, he brought us victory. We are called to love like our shepherd with self-sacrifice. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as your people, and we hear this story about your son being the good shepherd, and we think about the call in our lives to follow him, and following him is an act of love and trust, and as we follow him and love like him, That means we're going to love others with self-sacrificial love. So today I ask, Heavenly Father, you be with the people who are on the fence about following your son. I think about the people who have been doing it for many years and sometimes feel as if they don't do it as well as they would like. I think about people who are ready to make that decision and follow you through following your son. Be with these people. No matter where they're at, I ask that you reach out to them today and pull them closer to you. As we read, the Spirit lives in us and gives us the power we didn't know we would have otherwise. To show your presence, to show your koinonia, to show your power to bring us together as your flock and to love the world. 
And as we live that mission of following your son and, and bringing his love to the world and inviting them into his flock, may you be with us and empower us. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.